0: THE RELUCTANT CONFORMIST A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 9 Episode 1 THE RESEARCHER A quote relevant to Chapter 9 From Robert Hughes, 1938 to 2012 Art critic, writer, and television producer What strip mining is to nature The art market has become to culture Establishing the provenance of the plate became a priority. Magnus contacted museums and specialists worldwide. Some replies were enthusiastic, others less so. Several warned of how difficult a mission he'd taken on. The first significant breakthrough came when the Picasso Museum in Antibes in the south of France referred him to the Picasso administration in Paris. This establishment is run by the artist's son, Claude Picasso who manages most things relating to his father's unparalleled artistic legacy. Agreement from this organization is crucial in sanctioning the authenticity of a work believed to be that of Pablo Picasso. Magnus wrote to the Picasso administration in Paris, enclosing a set of detailed digital images of the plate. Their swift reply stated, from the information provided and only that we do not think your plate is from the hands of pablo picasso the rebuttal, although a setback, didn't deter magnus from his objective after all the statement inferred that if some pertinent support information was provided the ruling may be reconsidered as they hadn't examined the actual piece how could they be so absolute in their determination the course of action was clear He'd take the plate to the Picasso administration so they could see for themselves that they'd made a mistake. Surprisingly, Magnus's research showed that the number of original Picasso ceramics remains in doubt. Published estimates vary between 2,200 and 4,400 individual pieces. With uncertainty about the number of ceramic works produced, How can the specialists be confident in their dictates on what the artist actually produced? Magnus supposed that the more people who saw the plate, the greater the prospect of it being recognized for what he believed it to be. In an effort to gain maximum exposure, he established an internet blog, PicassoCeramic.blogspot.com. The blog was readily achieved. The main problem was how to attract connoisseurs to the website. Googling Picasso produced 120 million hits in 0.22 seconds, a formidable filtering undertaking for even the most enthusiastic art lover. Whilst holidaying in London, Magnus arranged for several internationally renowned auction houses to view the piece. Unfortunately, his approach to Christie's was futile. As the plate had no official impressed stamping, on the reverse side they weren't interested. The cipher incised into the back of the plate remained a mystery. Perhaps they were the secret classification code which Picasso was known to have employed from time to time. Bond's response was very different from Christie's. They were keenly interested and photographed the plate for specialist review in an effort to establish authorship. During their research, they forwarded digital images to the Picasso administration who quickly replied. We have already told Monsieur Macaulay what our opinion of the plate is. This irrefutable reaffirmation of the administration's opinion made redundant Magnus' proposed visit to Paris to take the plate for direct evaluation. The speed and nature of the reply demonstrated how complete, efficient, and effective the administration's record and retrieval system was. When he contacted Sotheby's, Their response was instant and enthusiastic. "'Can you bring it over now?' was their approach. "'Good morning. I have an appointment with Jerry Noonan,' Magnus advised the receptionist at Sotheby's imposing New Bond Street headquarters. "'An appointment with whom?' the front-of-house receptionist probed. On repeating the statement, he was confronted by a blank stare. "'There's nobody here by that name,' she stated. "'Jerry whom?' He restated the name slowly, and her face lit up with instant recognition. "'Ah! Jerry! I let him know you're here,' she said, with a hint of condescension playing about her face. "'And your name again was?' The whole exchange, even though masterfully executed, left Magnus slightly irritated, as he believed she knew all along the person he wished to see. He well recognized a patronizing put down when he was the victim of one. The receptionist appeared to be an employee making the most of her limited authority by giving the runaround to one ill at ease in unfamiliar surroundings. She directed him towards the first floor where the meeting was to be held. Along the corridor and at various strategic locations, Dark-suited and wireless-wired security men stood fixing attentive eyes on all the comings and goings. Canvases by recognized artists were stacked against walls in alcoves and hung all about in an oddly chaotic display. Magnus stated his business to the first-floor receptionist, and a few moments later, Jerry appeared. You can show me the plate over here, he offered pointing to an area with a small table and two padded chairs. It reads like a Picasso. It's right in its vocabulary. More painting than ceramic, he stated enthusiastically, holding the plate securely in the crook of his arm. It's alive with his wit and playfulness. Where did you get it? Magnus told the story while Jerry painstakingly examined the plate, and after some time stated with certainty No, it can't be a Picasso. It's too chromatic. You don't think it could be an anachronistic work, Magnus pressed. After all, his creative output from the potteries was anything but conventional, and its cataloguing, with the exception of the unique and edition works, is all but non-existent. Jerry didn't think so, and advised showing the piece to as many specialists as possible. When Magnus offered to support his position with a photograph of another plate that was removed from Picasso's more usual ceramic works, and which was indisputably attributed to the artist, Jerry stood up to leave as though expecting a tiresome, time-wasting debate. At this point they shook hands, and Magnus thanked Jerry for his time and advice. They parted amicably. And so Magnus discovered there is little appetite for discussion or review when it comes to establishing the authorship of a work of art. The connoisseurs and doyens of the art establishment are indisputably final in their subjective and tribal judgments, rulings that may be tainted by the stain of scholastic elitism or the overweening pride of the aficionado. These observations were dishearteningly confirmed by the BBC TV program Fake or Fortune. One of the episodes in the series investigated a signed Monet landscape painting, which remained unattributed, having been previously rejected by the Monet administration, also located in Paris. After an exhaustive investigation by a team of independent and unbiased specialists and technical experts, the painting's attribution continued to be denied, although all the administration's initial concerns had been resolutely answered and assuredly repudiated. The reason given by the then Monet administrator for continuing to deny attribution of the painting was that he couldn't go against the initial rejection of the work by the former administrator, his deceased father. This conduct suggests that even when confronted with positive forensic analyses, compelling provenance documentation, and scientific evidence in support of authentication, the final decision may depend upon a subjective response based on a misguided sense of genealogical lockstep or latent antecedent intimidation. On the surface, at least, this voice from the grave ruling appeared to flout reason. Rather than engendering confidence in the official authentication process, which is presumably the purpose of the Monet Authority of last resort, which rests with the current administrator, it may achieve exactly the opposite effect, and in so doing, subvert the organization's very raison d'être. The inference Magnus drew from this, and from his own experience, was that those who had warned him of the difficulty in establishing the provenance and authorship of the plate had cruelly underestimated the obstacles to be overcome. Even so, undeterred, he forged ahead. Having been suitably impressed by the diligence and rigour of the specialists engaged in the TV programme Fake or Fortune, even considering the Monet fiasco, Magnus applied to the BBC to have his plate selected as an artwork for evaluation in the follow-up series. Unfortunately, the plate wasn't suitable, the focus of the programme being on paintings and not on ceramic works. The avenues of inquiry were swiftly disappearing. During the following months, he showed the plate to an academic specializing in art history and appreciation, who had written a book on the works of Picasso. Magnus was grateful to the professor for making time in his busy schedule to offer an opinion, but the meeting was to no avail. Unfortunately, it was a typically hubristic performance by an academic confronting somebody he considered to be ignorant. That vacuous encounter left Magnus despondent. Against his stalwart nature, and better judgment, he was beginning to believe that the genesis of the plate would remain a mystery. That was until... Am I speaking to Magnus Macaulay? A cultured woman's voice inquired over an echoing line. Yes, he replied. What can I do for you? My name is Dorothea Macaulay, and while I am on the island, I'd like to discuss the works of Willie Lease with you. "'Perhaps we could meet for coffee tomorrow," she suggested. "'Spill the beans at ten. Dorothea was a strikingly elegant fifty-something, who flaunted her female gist with the casual confidence of a much younger woman, its impact suggestively appealing. "'At the Kurt Switters exhibition last autumn, I was intrigued by the resourcefulness and the novelty woven through the works of Willie Lees,' she explained. I tried to contact you through the sale gallery, but you were abroad. So there they were, six months later, unravelling the mystical praxis of a Manx farmer who had morphed into a sculptor of unique distinction. Magnus explained how the sculptural pieces were recognized as something more than just a reflection of rural necessity to secure barbed wire, old fencing, and baling twine, to prevent them becoming entangled in cultivation equipment, or in Snare, the legs of livestock, Willie used waste material and other farm scraps with creative flair and humour to fashion distinctive works of art. Whilst perusing the works of Willie Lease online, I noticed your other blog. Is this a Picasso? she said nonchalantly. It's a magnificent plate. What's the story? Magnus explained how he'd come across the plate in France during a walking holiday and of his futile attempts to establish its provenance and authorship. Throughout the account, Dorothea listened with the rare single-minded attention akin to the legendary focus of Bill Clinton, a former American president. When the account was finished, she explained that she was an art historian, currently researching material for a book. I think we can be of great help to one another, she stated, smiling winningly. I've dedicated my working life to studying Picasso, and for the past twenty years I've specialized in his ceramic works, with a view to publishing a catalogue raisonné for this aspect of his oeuvre, very important works which have been too long misunderstood and neglected. Now it was Magnus' turn to be surprised. "'I could have explained this straight away, but first needed to assess what manner of person I'm dealing with,' she continued. "'Amongst the dedicated and honourable that inhabit the fine art world, there is a cohort of charlatans and fraudsters who scavenge a good living, hoodwinking, reckless, and ill-informed.' "'And how do I fit into your lexicon of personalities?' Magnus smirked, with an amused but lively interest. "'Let me put it this way,' Dorothea replied. "'The story of how you came across the plate, although incredible, is entirely believable when you know the plate's history.' "'You mean you know its providence?' he prompted enthusiastically. "'More or less,' she replied, "'although until now its current whereabouts remained a mystery.' I even heard rumors that it had vanished into the Swiss black hole of artworks. There's a warehouse in Geneva Freeport in which more than a million artworks, including around 1,000 works by Picasso, are secreted. They are stockpiled out of sight in wooden crates behind locked metal doors. Thank God that wasn't the fate of your piece. I've examined the blog images in great detail, on high magnification but need to see the actual plate to be sure also several independent experts need to endorse my findings before i can go public why go public he inquired you mean the work may be as important as i've always suspected let's not get ahead of ourselves she cautioned if you're prepared to make the plate available i'll arrange for my colleagues to examine it Then we'll know one way or the other. In the meantime, I'll have them scrutinize the blog images.